All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is all we're going to read for the moment. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this is, this is where we are as a congregation and just kind of like big picture. We just spent over a little over a year going through First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel and the history of Israel, it's defining uh, this initiation of kingship what it was ultimately for God to call David as king. So as we look at Jesus being identified as the son of David, that's a major focus in who Jesus is in fulfillment of prophecy and the promises that God gave. So very foundational. That's one of the reasons. So we finished 2 Samuel last week, and it's been the long-term plan that as we looked at David's life and all of the images that his life provides in regards to who the Messiah was supposed to be, that we were going to immediately step into the revelation of this promise. So most important chapter in David's life is 2 Samuel chapter 7. That is the prophecy they got and the promise that God gave to David that his seed, a son of his, a literal son of his, would sit on his throne, on the throne of David, on the seed of David for all eternity, and all the imagery that that meets. So that is who Jesus is, and that's who Matthew is identifying Jesus as from the get-go. But in the get-go of this, Matthew's not hiding behind anything. He's not waiting till the end of the gospel to give us this surprise unveil that, hey, look at who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. He's the Messiah. He tells us straight up, this is who Jesus Christ is. And it's not Jesus the Christ. It's Jesus Christ, where Christ has become a name for who Jesus is. And again, it's focusing on this anointed one is what the word means. So in light of that, is we're going we're gonna to look at Matthew a little bit. We don't know that much about Matthew. We know from his, this gospel, you know, we only know from church history tells us that Matthew was the author of this. So Papias in the early second century, he's the source that we have that Matthew, the apostle, is the one who authored this document. One of the reasons that also comes up is this is the only gospel that calls Matthew, Matthew. Mark and Luke call Matthew Levi. So Levi would be his Hebrew name. Matthew would be that name that he took on after he became a believer and Jesus transformed him. I bring that up to say this. Matthew had major issues with religion. Does anybody have issues with religion? I didn't, growing up, I didn't have a negative experience with religion in my life. You know, my parents, we prayed a Catholic prayer at dinner every single night, prayed that now I lay me down to sleep every single evening. I, I still remember those prayers growing up. There, we had spurts where we went to church every weekend, for the most part, Christmas and Easter kind of stuff. But my parents always had a faith. They didn't teach me anything that, was, that had to be undone in my soul, if that makes sense. A lot of human beings in your upbringing, you've had a very negative religious experience. You see the hypocrisy. Anybody see hypocrisy in what's identified as Christianity and the Church of Christ? You can see it, you can see it across the board because human beings, we're all failures, we all sin, we all make mistakes. 
But when religion gets founded upon a mistake and a man's teaching and a human error, it deviates from the heart of God rapidly. So when we sit with Matthew, Matthew is called a tax collector. That means in his culture, Matthew is a cultural liberal in his day. He has a major problem with the religion that he has seen and that he has experienced. And as he is pressing into his adulthood and his occupation, he is thumbing his nose, so to say, and turning away from the religion of his culture because he's bothered by it in some fashion. And we can say that with, with a great deal of certainty because as you travel through the Gospel of Matthew, what he has to communicate about the religious leadership is very negative. And it's very negative because he addresses often Jesus rebuking the religious elders and teaching them what the Old Testament is really teaching and what it's really saying and trying to turn people's hearts away from religion and turn their hearts to their creator. That is the major focus of Matthew. From his title, this is the beginning, this is the genesis, this is the origin of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the framework. I, I, and again, I don't, he's got that at the head. Turn to the very last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28. It's always good to know where somebody is going at the end and how they conclude everything. So Matthew 28, 16 says, then the 11 disciples, there's 12 but Judas betrayed the Lord. So at this time, in this scene, there's 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. So this is after his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He's, made, he's appeared to them, and he's told them to go ahead to Galilee. And says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Again, nobody receives worship but God. Very clear teaching from Genesis to Revelation. They are, they are worshiping him as their creator. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Again, there's confusion. There's lack of clarity. There's lack of understanding. There's, their expectations have not been met, met. They're sitting in a lot of unknown and radical change in their life in this scene. And it says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. We come and look at this because as we travel through the Gospel of Matthew, this is what he is going to draw out. Jesus had in his ministry, all authority from the Father. People were astonished by his authority and by his teaching is a common theme that we are going to see often. You can see that Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, this conveyance to the disciples, I have always been one with the Father. All authority of the Father has always been mine, and it has been granted to me, and I am sending you into the world, not just to the Jews, but I am sending you to all of humanity, to all of the Gentiles with this information. One, to convey to the world, this is who I am. And as we sit in this gospel the, uh, all the Gospels, they're essentially a biography. They're a story of Jesus' life and his ministry, who it is, what he did, and people who hear that, 
are given this opportunity, do you want to say yes or do you want to say no? Those who say yes, you are to be immersed. You are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, this triune God that created the heavens and the earth. In this immersion, it's, 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 it, there's a picture of it. There's a washing. There is you are now dead to yourself and to your life and to your old person. You have been washed of your sins. And as you are brought out of that water, the imagery is that you are now born again, born from above. You have a new life in Christ, and he is the one who is going to lead your life out. That is what this baptism is. So when you say yes to Jesus, here is this public initiation of being immersed into his life. But not only that, as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, what are we supposed to do when we gather together as the church? Teaching one another to observe, to guard, to keep, to do everything that Jesus has commanded to us. In the knowledge of, in the promise, he is right here in our midst. There is never a moment in your life where your God is not present. And as a believer, he takes up residence. He is dwelling within us. He sees us. He loves us. He sacrificed himself for us. He has given us his life. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. This is what we do as we gather together as a church. I said I was going to use uh, this introduction a little bit as, as an announcement. What we do as a, as a congregation, so if you've been here for a long time, this should just be a refresher. If you're newer to the congregation, or if this is your first time here this morning, this is, this is our order of service. When we come in in, in, there, in all the setup that's going on for a Sunday morning, we open up the building. The first thing we're attending to is prayer. We want to gather together and pray for each other. We sit in there and we converse a lot because we're sharing just, just the stories and narrative of what's going on in our lives and what God is doing. But we always turn our attention to asking the Lord to have his will and his way in our presence in the morning. We have adult education class that's going on. Again, focus on the teaching of God's word and that table fellowship, sitting around the table with one another, conversing into the word of God. That allows others to get in here and prepare, set up the children's ministry that's going on, the, the junior high class, the worship team to once again go through rehearsal. You ought to praise God emphatically and often for the worship team that we have. Do you know why? These men, these women, they love the Lord. And what we get to do is we come in, this is why we do worship to the be, in the beginning, is because it prepares our hearts. Some of you are coming into the room this morning with heaviness. Some of you are coming in with great joy. There is a, there's a, an, an aspect of worship, and when you're sitting in the Psalms, when you look at the lyrics that we're singing, so much of it is a message to your soul. So much of it is a message from your soul to your Creator. I don't know where you are in regards to worship, but it's a priority and an emphasis for us because I want you to freely worship your creator. Some of you are babies in that relationship. You don't have a lot of depth and experience. So as, as we're singing these lyrics, a lot of them won't make sense to you. They make sense as time goes on. That idea is going to come up as we go through this genealogy this morning. But we want to enter into this place with our, our hearts and our minds transitioning away from the world, transitioning away from, you know, just all of life and being able to take that life and that prayer and being able to ground yourself once again in your relationship with God and who he is and what he's done. 
And that has, its, that has a powerful way of preparing us to step into his word for us to receive instruction from him. I have written on the flap of my Bible, Jesus. And in this, in Salt Lake, when the pastor had the wooden pulpit, he's got a different one now. He had a, he had a plaque on the top, and it comes out of John chapter 12, where some Greeks, some foreigners come to Jesus' disciples, and they say, hey, man, I want to see Jesus. That's my paraphrase. But again, they didn't come to the disciples to see the disciples. They came, to the, they came to a disciple, a follower of Jesus, because they wanted to see that disciple's teacher. So my perspective as I come up and teach is I, I know you're not here to see me. You're not here to see Calvary Chapel. Yes, we have fellowship with one another. We love seeing each other. But our priority, my emphasis right now, is that you would see and that you would know your creator. You are in this room, whether you know it or not, to know him. Eternal life is the knowledge of the Father, the knowledge of the Son, the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 17. So we place great emphasis on this document. Whatever we're doing, wherever we are in the Word, we're teaching verse by verse through the document, not skipping over anything. For those who are here in the study through First and Second Samuel, how many times did I say that I pretty much don't want to teach this and I would never choose to teach this subject? Because there's a lot of uncomfortable stuff in the Bible. But when you go verse by verse, you have no choice but to confront it. And all I'm conveying to you, this, this, what I'm conveying to you this morning, this is, this is where I've spent time with the Lord. I've spent 25 years in a relationship with him, and he's taken me through a lot of life experience and journey. But often what you're getting is just what, what he's been doing in me in the last week. If I, as I've sat down and I've studied, this isn't I'm studying to prepare to give you a sermon and a message. I study because I want to know God. I want to understand his word. I want to understand him. I want to love him, and I want to follow him. And all you're getting every single Sunday morning is just an expression of my life experience. Uh, Pastor, again, you get, you get these little phrases from different people, but I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where I found bread. Right? But Matthew, Matthew is just one beggar showing other beggars where he found bread. When we sit with Matthew, when we sit with this man, he is a man, again, cultural liberal, who Jesus is pulling and calling Matthew and pulling the cultural conservative, Simon the Zealot, these two men on opposite sides of the political spectrum in the day, and he's telling both men, come and follow me, and I'm going to make you to be the man and the woman that I've created you to be. Our attention is to be upon Jesus in everything. And as we sit in this gospel, we've called it, this is, this is Saint Matthew. Again, the title of a saint, he is a holy one. Uh, I think he deserves that title because how many of you have your name written on the foundation stone of heaven? Anybody in the room? None of us, right? Matthew, like this guy and Jesus calling him and selecting him and his obedience to follow him and have faith and witness and then go and communicate this gospel to others. This man has his name written on a 400-mile foundation stone of the New Jerusalem. Pretty important guy in the kingdom of God. This is a man, again, as we sit in the gospel narratives, we understand Mark to be Peter's testimony. That's what church history tells us. Luke wasn't one of the, those disciples that followed Jesus around in his ministry. Luke is a guy who came later as a believer and investigated and wrote everything down in order. 
John is another disciple that we have that witnessed all of these things. But when we sit in Matthew's testimony, we're sitting in the, in the eyewitness testimony of a man who had major issues with his culture. He had major issues with his culture's religion. But here, God went and chose him out of the masses to come to him, and he was willing to leave all because he was dissatisfied with all that he had. And he turned his attention to Jesus, and he never took his eyes off of Jesus. And Matthew's just an awesome testimony. So when we sit in this entire document, my guess is it's going to take us a couple of years to get through this. I'm in no hurry. We're going to go slow, and we're going to have fun. But his entire thread is, I want you to see, I want you to know, and I want you to understand your creator and your savior, who he is in his eternity, who he was as a man, what he taught, how he astounded us, how he loved the people, how he shepherded people, how he brought together a bunch of wing nuts and sent us out into the world with the message of his love and his glory. This is the message of the gospel of Matthew. Now, we're going to read through a boring, boring genealogy. You ready? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Oeb. Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Got all that? Good. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, and Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Akim, and Akim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Methan, Methan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Do you know how much you can learn from a genealogy? This is how powerful a genealogy is. I still remember this. This is 21 years ago. I can name the year. I listened to a Bible study. It was called How to Study the Bible, being taught by a Calvary pastor. I decided to start in Genesis. This is one of his early Genesis studies. And his message in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 is what turned on my light bulb to how powerful and astonishing the Word of God is. Fabulous study if you've never done it before. I'm not going to get sidetracked in the interpretation of that because we got a lot of cover this morning. The meat... And the genius of what Matthew has just conveyed to us, it is, it is extremely rich and is, it is extremely deep. 
if you are not familiar with the word of God, you don't have relationship with these individuals and what their lives have been able to communicate to you. In the very beginning, when it says that Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that he is the son of David, that has very specific and deep meat and meaning in the word of God that we've just covered as we went through First and Second Samuel. That is, his identity is the son of David. Again, it's the fulfillment of that promise out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Most important passage out of David's life is that chapter. When you sit in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, um, you can go to Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, just major passages that are identifying promises in regards to the promised seed to David and who he would be. That's the emphasis that Matthew is putting upon identifying Jesus Christ as the son of David. It's all the promises that God gave to David, and they are fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus alone. Identifying him as the son of Abraham identifies him with the promises that God gave to Abraham. And the foundation of God, so in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters have their specific context, and at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12 is God calling Abraham, choosing one man out of the masses of humanity. I am calling you out of your family and for your country to a place that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make myself known to you. But in that promise, he gives a promise to Abraham that through your seed, through your descendants, and specifically your descendant, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Not just Abraham's descendants, but all the nations of the world. And again, you sit in Genesis chapter 10, all the nations of the world at that time are listed out. So the emphasis that the gospel is for all the nations, not just for the Jews, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the Gentiles, for all the nations. It's an emphasis of what Jesus taught. It's an emphasis of the Old Testament and the Old Testament promises. It's the emphasis of New Testament teaching and New Testament reality that anybody that wants a relationship with their creator, come on, you can have a relationship with Jesus. So, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that is the major doctrinal emphasis that's placed on those relationships. But again, if you're familiar with the word, you can sit in all these names and you're going to know their stories. Abraham's life has a meaning and a context to you. Isaac's life has a meaning and a context to you. But if you know the story, Isaac has an older brother named Esau. In image, in doctrine, there's an Old Testament quote, and it's quoted in the New Testament, that God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. He hated the older brother, and he loved the younger brother. Wait a minute. That's, I just fast forward a generation. Who's Isaac? Isaac's brother's Ishmael. See, I get so confused in the word. So Ish, Isaac has an older brother that is a product of the flesh. Um, what's his? It's Ishmael. Hagar, it is, we're not going to get into all that scene because I'm going to run out of time. We could literally spend half a year in this chapter, and I wouldn't run out of material. Um, but in all of these narratives, you are watching God make a choice generation after generation to bring about his plans and his purposes and his timing. What happened to my sister on Thursday was it's a sudden event, Right? And a lot of us know what it's like to go down the path of life, you're happy-go-lucky, everything's normal, and then a sudden event happens, and life is now different. 
Many of you have had that experience where God stepped into your life, whether it was in a moment or over a season. You had an event in your relationship with the Lord that has radically transformed your life and set you on a new course. Every single one of these lives that's being listed out, they've all encountered God to a different degree or another. In Genesis, we get this major foundation for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. What's interesting about Judah and what's pulled out here, Judah's the fourthborn. His eldest brother, Reuben, is excluded from being the eldest brother in, in the culture because of sin. Uh, Simeon and Levi are excluded because of another sin. And now Judah is that, that son that's elevated to that position. And again, this is, my, sorry, my brain's going a million miles an hour because those of you who know the Old Testament, you're going to say, well, what about Joseph? Because his story's in there too. But this is what Matthew is pulling out in the importance of the genealogy is Judah has children by this woman, Tamar. Judah leaves his father and his brothers and he went and he married a Canaanite. A Canaanite is an inhabitant of the land that were, you know, they're all placed under the curse. The, the idolatry, the abominations that these cultures are engaged in is absolutely horrific, and we're not going to get into it. Judah goes and marries uh, a Canaanite, and he has three children. Two of those children, die, well, yeah, he chooses for his oldest son, marries Tamar, okay? The oldest son dies, and in this culture, the next son marries the daughter to raise up a child for the son that died. That son dies too, and he's got a third son that he's holding back. So the scene in regards to Tamar's story and inserting her into the lineage of Christ, this is, this is a choice by the Almighty God. And it's his way and God's way and Matthew's way of highlight, highlighting to the culture and to the readers and to us today that in the genealogy of our Savior are all kinds of messy lives. Tamar pretends to be a prostitute, ends up sleeping with Judah, and that's how these twins are born. So the, in this lineage, it's really messy. It's really, it was messy then, it's messy now. It's subject matter that we don't even want to talk about from the pulpit on the Sunday morning kind of subject matter. But here you have this woman inserted into a genealogy in a culture where women are not placed into the genealogies. It's all focused on the patriarchal male line. Not only that, as you continue down through the story, you get the woman Rahab is entered into the story. Her story is in the book of Joshua. She is a woman of, again, native of the, the area of Jericho and its inhabitants. And as God brings out the Jews from their slavery in Egypt through all of his power and might, making himself known to the descendants of Abraham, also making himself known to the Egyptians and making himself known to the peoples where he was bringing his children into the land, Rahab heard all of these testimonies. Rahab, is her job was a prostitute. And all of the darkness of that life when she was made known, when God made known himself to her through the testimony of all that was going on during her time, when the spies come in to spy out Jericho, she preserves those spies because she says, your God, 
He's God. Our gods, they're not God. Your God is God, and I know it, and I'll do anything that I can to help you, and in my help for you, I'm asking that you would protect me and my family, and that's what happens. We're told when the Jews come in and Jericho falls that Rahab, her mother, her father, her brothers, and all of her family are removed out. They're put outside the camp of Israel in safety as the nation of Israel comes in and destroys Jericho. Again, another woman that she didn't stay excluded from the nation of Israel. At some point, she married this man, Salmon. And through her relationship, their descendant is Boaz. So another woman with a very sordid history brought into the lineage of Christ. The next one listed out is Ruth. So if you know the story of Ruth, it's between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel that we just studied. So Ruth is great-great-grandma to David, but Ruth is a Moabitess. And that story in Ruth, again, gives you the whole scene of you have this Jewish family in a time of a famine, goes to a foreign, foreign land, goes to Moab. The dad dies. The sons both marry foreign women, Moabites. Uh, both of the sons die, and Naomi's ready to go back home because the famine is o- over, and her husband and her sons have died in this foreign land. Ruth chooses, and again, my mother-in-law, she had the book of Ruth open at my wedding. Again, this major vow and covenant that Ruth makes with Naomi, and the whole scene, and her end, end up getting married to, who she marry? Boaz? She marries, No. Who's Rahab married? Boaz. Who did, uh, who am I? I'm getting way too many names. I'm talking about Ruth, not Rahab. You keeping this all straight? All right. It's, it's all straight in my head. Rahab married Salmon. There you go. Read the text. Ruth married Boaz. In that, you have this production of the king. In this scene of the kings, we're not going to spend any time in this at all. But you go set in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, mainly Second Chronicles. You have all the narrative of all of these men that are listed out. Most of them are evil men, defined by God as evil. Some of them are good in their relationship with the Lord, but all the sordid history again, the the weight in their stories and their personalities, their relationship with the Lord, whether good or bad, all plays out in the scenes of the Old Testament, which ultimately their sin leads them to this major event in the nation of Israel, which is where God uses the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, carry away the culture captive for 70 years. For guys, we just finished uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah on Wednesday nights. Um, the scene of Zerubbabel, that name, he is one of the men who came back and helped reestablish Jerusalem and the temple and the worship of God and those whole scenes. But ultimately, these lines, this genealogy is being brought down to a legal definition of Joseph as a son of David. And the language shifts where it's this person begot, this person begot, this person begot, this person. It's all very active. But when it says that Joseph is the husband of Mary, the, sh- the focus of the language shifts to Mary and of whom was born Jesus. So that, that word for born, it's now passive because, again, her conception 
is, and we'll, we'll step into that and deal with that next week, is an act of God, not an act of men. But it's all pointing to here is Jesus. This is what we're going to be talking about as we go through this gospel and this biography of his life, as we sit in his definition as the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham, the son of God. It is all of these Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Christ, many yet to be fulfilled in him. But as we travel through the gospel of Matthew, he's going to pull out repeatedly how the Old Testament was fulfilled in him. But this narrative of the genealogy, it's all conveying um, here is God making all of these choices throughout human history sovereignly, bringing about his plan, his purpose. And here is the son, the son of God, who is called Christ, who is fulfilling all of these incredible promises. It's seen as broken into uh, these three groups of 14. There's different ideas. One is that David's name in Hebrew, it's when you add up the numerical values of the characters of his name adds up to 14. So identifying Jesus as the son of David, that numerology makes sense in its context. It also makes sense as you have, you have uh, six sevens. Right? So when you divide each one of these, there's two sevens in each one of the groupings that Jesus, his genealogy, his generation, he would be the seventh seven, that idea of perfection. There's a lot of other ideas that play into the numerology also, but a lot of it is conjecture and you don't want to get confused in that. But here is, again, here is the major theme and the major point of what Matthew is conveying to anybody who is going to read his gospel, his narrative about his Savior and our Savior. And the major focus is, is, is that Jesus is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is the one who has made himself known throughout the history of the nation of Israel. When you sit in that history, when you sit in the narrative, when you go look at the specifics, every single one of those Old Testament, uh, those, those pictures, the illustrations that we have, you sit in the sacrificial system, all of it is pointing to this fulfillment of God sending his son to be the sacrifice for the sin of humanity. Throughout that narrative, you are watching God in his sovereignty elect people, choose people according to his plans, his purposes, his will, and his timing. Every single one of the names that is being listed for us, God has chosen in their context. He made himself known to them, some of them. And some we have a lot of information about, some we don't have so much information about. But the, the thread to follow through is that God always has been, he is right now, and he always will be in absolute sovereign control of our lives and the history and future of all humanity. The other through this, as you look through the narrative and you sit in the specifics of each one of the names, specifically the women that are pulled out. So you sit with the four women that are listed in history with Tamar. Uh, we didn't cover Bathsheba's life, but when it identifies her as the wife of Uriah, again, all the scene that went on there in David's life, not going to rehash any of it, but Tamar, Rahab, 
Ruth and Bathsheba, they all have major issues in regards to circumstances, in regards to character, in regards to who they were before they turned their attention to their Savior, their Creator in faith. Because every single one of those women ends up turning to the Lord. Every single one of those women, the two of them, it's questionable, but all of them are believed to be Gentiles, where this is not, again, just a focus on the Jews and the Jewish culture. Matthew is very intentionally pulling women of questionable uh, character into the lineage of Christ so that all of us would not be bogged down by thinking that we should be impressed by genealogies and bloodlines because the only purpose of any genealogy is to preserve the genealogy so that God can fulfill it in Christ. Everybody else's bloodline have fun geeking out on whatever your heritage is. It has, an, it has an impact on who you are today, but it's meaningless. There is no high society. There is no low society. There is no one special because they have this bloodline in their lineage. All of us have the same blood pumping through our veins, and the only reason we are children of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? major narrative of what the gospel communicates is that everybody is welcome, but we don't stay who we were in the past. Every single one of these women has a radical turn and a repentance and a regeneration in God. But all of this, and then again, so a lot of the understanding of why pulling in the four, four women is also to highlight the fifth woman, which is Mary. Did Mary bring Jesus into this world through questionable circumstances? Highly. I'm pregnant, but I've never had sex. I'm pregnant, but the child that's in me is the child of God. Do you think that she was questioned? She was heavenly questioned. Do you think that Jesus was questioned as a child in his culture? We see it in the Gospels where his, his ancestry is picked on by the religious culture of the day, saying that, you know, you're, you're invalid just based upon how you were brought into this world. And again, a lot of cultures put all these kinds of definitions upon illegitimate births, right? I don't think that there's any such thing as an illegitimate birth. God knows who you are. He gave you life. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. It does not matter ultimately who your father and who your mother are. I hope you have a fantastic relationship with your parents, because I do with mine. But ultimately, it's your relationship with who your creator is. Your history clearly impacts your today, but your history does not have to own you today. The only person you need to let own you and identify you is the one who made you, knitted you, saved you, and is leading you in this life. And that is ultimately the weight of what all of this genealogy is conveying. And throughout of the, through, as we get into next week, we'll press into this, uh, the birth narrative. We'll focus on Jesus as the son of Mary next week and all of that's importance and what Matthew is pulling out for us there. So worship team, come on up. In conclusion, I began earlier with that introduction of our order of service and what we do in the beginning and what I'm doing as I am conveying and teaching what it is that I've learned about the Lord and what I'm learning out of his word. 
the end of the service, we are told as often as we are gathered together as believers in Jesus Christ, we're to keep and turn our attention on him always. Communion is that process. As often as we gather together, we ought to share in what's identified as the Lord's Supper. The evening before Jesus is arrested and crucified, this is a a Passover meal that he sits and has with his disciples. But as he is teaching them in that last moment, those a section of his last words, he's talking to his disciples, those who are following him, they believe in him, they trust in him. At the same time, Jesus is bringing about and has continually had a lot of confusion in their lives as they're trying to process through their circumstances. It says, as often as you gather together in the future, as you were waiting for me to return, I want you to break this bread and all of its imagery. I want you to drink this cup, the fruit of the vine and all of its imagery in remembering me. I want you to remember who I was in your midst, what it is that I did for you on the cross that I'm going to, and we're looking back in history, the cross that Jesus went to. As often as we gather together, what it is, what is it that's going on in your soul this morning as you've come into this place and you've worshiped God. You are the one who has a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He is speaking to you in this moment. He's highlighting different things for you than he's highlighted for me. Communion has its way of just grounding your heart in gratitude, in understanding who it is, what it is that he's done for you, that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are identified in him, that you are dead and buried, your sins have been removed from you, nothing else controls you, nothing else labels you, you are not the slave of anyone or anything else. He and he alone, through the pouring out of his blood and all the promises that he conveys to us through the gospel, this is what we need to sit in as often as we gather together as believers, Because if we get on our minds on anything else, we're just going to become another weird religious body that's going to make other human beings uncomfortable, just like Matthew was uncomfortable in his culture because the attention is on something else other than the Almighty God. And when that occurs, everybody feels it in the room, whether visually or emotionally or spiritually, we feel it when we're off. So we use communion to ground us together in community. So come up during the first song and get communion and hold on to it and we shall pray together as a community. But as we worship, whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in you, it's an opportunity to just turn and respond to God in the moment. And then, after that, I come up and be a smart aleck a little bit. And then we get to hang out as a church. In the introduction, we don't have a meet and greet time where you can stand up and really greet those around you and everybody that's come into the room. Our emphasis is after the service. We have food to help take that, the, those, that hunger off, off the edge of everybody's stomach. And you are free to hang out in this room as long as your heart desires. This is where we laugh. The kids run around. This space is a sanctuary for the body. It doesn't mean it needs to be all quiet and you know we're all just... You know, this this is a place for the family. This is a place for the body of Christ. And we want to give you that time to get to know each other as the body of Christ because we need each other. Amen?